0: Hey guys, welcome to the show. I have a very special guest today. He's a dear friend. He is an author. He's a pastor and a confidant. And uh, I'm really happy to have him on the show. He, you probably know him from his book, Messy Grace, uh, which came out several years ago, which is amazing. I, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And we're going to, today we're going to be talking about his new book, Messy Truth, how to foster community without sacrificing conviction. Welcome, Caleb Kaltenbach. Hey, Beckett Cook. It's great to be here, man. So good to have you on the show. Uh, so tell us, for people who don't know, I mean, tell us briefly, kind of a, what your experience was growing up with a gay dad and two lesbian mothers.
1: Yeah. So I was. I was. My parents were both professors. Uh, in Columbia, Missouri in the 1980s, and when I was two years old, they uh, divorced and both went into same-sex relationships. Uh, My dad had several friends, uh, but my mom was in a 22-year monogamous relationship with a psychologist named Vera, and they were together until Vera died of cancer in February 2005, Um, and so my whole uh, childhood, I was brought up in the LGBTQ community um uh, many times going with my um, mom's to activist events and pride parades and even bars and clubs and so on and so forth and um i that that's where i really started to hate christians as a young kid because i saw how some quote unquote supposed christians uh were reacting towards people in my mom's parade and i still remember as if it was yesterday i asked my mom why are they acting like that and she said well Caleb they're christians and Christians hate gay people. If you are not like them, they will not like you. And then I saw other Christians ignoring their young sons who were dying of age in the 1980s, um, not being with them in the hospital bed. And I thought to myself, I never want to be a Christian because if Christians are this bad, I can't imagine how awful Jesus must be. And wow. then I joined a Bible study at the age of 16 to learn how to disprove the Bible. And that turned out real well, as you can tell. <laughs> well. Um, and I changed my, uh, view of sexuality, my theological view and just ethical view in general, uh, to what I hold today that God designed sexual intimacy and affection to be expressed in a marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, but also, um, that is my belief, but at the same time, theological convictions, as you would well agree, are never catalysts to devalue other people. If anything, they should make us value people all the more. Uh, because of how much Jesus loves them. And so um, I had to come out at the age of 16. I had to come out as a Christian to my three gay parents. And they ended up kicking me out of the house for a while. They let me back in. Long story short, at the ages of 69, 70, they were living in the Dallas area, which you're very familiar with um, when I was there for three and a half years and uh, preaching. And uh, they both gave their lives to Jesus at the age of 69, 70. They had been attending the church that I was preaching at and the people there treated them well and they didn't agree with the relationship decisions, uh, some other views that my parents had, but that never precluded them from loving my parents. And I just saw how important community was during that time.
0: Wow. Praise God. That's amazing. And tell us about messy grace group. What is that?
1: Yeah. So I, uh, started the Messy Grace group back in August, 2017. And I basically help, um, uh, I, I consult with schools and ministries, but also with churches, and I help them to develop systems and processes that will honor their, their doctrine, their values, but also create margins for LGBTQ people to attend um, because people kind of follow Jesus better in community, um, not in isolation, as you well know from your yes. story. And so Uh, I, it's amazing how many churches really still don't get that. And I think there are a lot of churches that need coaches and people to help them, uh, people like you, you know, and me to help them kind of think through and navigate that whole tension of grace and truth. Um, because balance isn't the goal, uh, glorifying Jesus is the goal and loving God and people is the goal. So, um, so I do that. Uh, full time and also full time. I, I serve as a, a research pastor, one of the many pastors on staff at Shepherd Church in Los Angeles area. Um, and I write books and I'm married and I have my money do list that is not done. Anyway, that's what I do.
0: <laughs> and what, um, and how, ha- so how is your new book, Messy Truth, that just came out two days ago? How is Messy Truth different from your first, the, the Messy Grace book? Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, know, in general, because we're, we're going to get into the details, but in general, no, absolutely, the... absolutely. Um, twofold. One, I
1: think that obviously there's a bit more of an emphasis on truth um, throughout the book, whereas Messy Grace, there's more of an emphasis on grace, even though there was truth and there is grace in this one. But I would describe it like this. Messy Grace, the first book, was all about um, a Christian's individual personal relationships with their LGBTQ friends and family. Messy truth is all about how do you connect your LGBTQ friends and family to a Christ-centered loving community? Um that that is kind of the best way that I would describe it. Messy grace is more personal,
0: messy truth is more about community. And so, I mean, this that raises the question: what is messy about truth? So that, that's a great question.
1: And there's nothing messy about truth. Um, just like race. Uh, God's truth is perfect. You know, like David writes in Psalm uh, Psalm 19, that it's pure, it's clean, it's radiant. Um, Psalm 119, God's truth is perfect. But the messy part is there for the rest of us, because we are stuck in the arena of time. And we are sinful, broken uh, people. Uh, Some of us are saved, sinful, broken people. But nonetheless, we're still sinful, broken people. And so the messy part kind of constitutes the fact that we do feel tension um, between grace and truth. We feel tension when our convictions and our compassion for others and the conversations that we have to have in the community that we're in kind of collide together. We feel that tension. Now, is there any tension from God's vantage point? No, God's timeless. God's perfect. He is sovereign. He understands it. Both our limited minds and our broken world. Um, it feels messy, um, and so that's why I call it uh, messy truth.
0: Yeah, and I get this question all the time, and I and you you talk about this in your book. But how how do you? Ba- I mean, how do we as believers balance grace and truth? And when we're <clears throat> when we're out in the world, when we're in church, dealing with people who are struggling with same sex attraction, or whatever. How what? how do we balance? Cause you know, in the gospels, I always say this, Jesus balanced grace and truth perfectly in every yeah. interaction he had. So I know we should model after him, but like, what, what is your advice on how to balance that the grace and truth with this issue of the LGBTQ issue?
1: Yeah, I, I would, I would say, I would say a couple of things. Um, uh, number one, as much as we can, um, I think we need to look at the individual and hear their story, and see where they're coming from, and I think Jesus serves as a great example of that, because um, in John chapter 3, Jesus shares the gospel with Nicodemus. John chapter 4, Jesus shares the gospel with the woman at the well. Jesus shares the same gospel in two different ways. With Nicodemus, he starts off with truth and ends in grace. The woman at the well, he starts off with grace, and he ends with truth. And so his approach was different based on the person that he was addressing. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was more about knowledge, legalism. Jesus met him there right out the bat. I tell you the truth. Nobody's going to come in the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And then meets a woman at the well, a little bit more relational, until he asks, hey, go call your husband and come back, <laughs> you know, just kind of right in your face there. But he had two different approaches. Why? Because they were two different people. Um, I think it's very similar to the Apostle Paul and how he preached differently to the philosophers in Acts 17 than he did the Sanhedrin. um, Because there were two different audiences. So I think um, one of the, besides prayer and reliance on God and listening to the Holy Spirit in the moment, I think one of the biggest ways that we can absolutely um, try to live in this tension of grace and truth is by really getting to know people. And, uh, that my friend can be messy.
0: Yeah. And you, I mean, you talk, you, there's a lot, a big emphasis in the book on empathy and what, I mean, for people who have no relation to that world or don't know anyone who's gay, whatever, how, what would you recommend in terms of how do you, how do you become empathetic towards someone in that community? Yeah. Well, I mean, first
1: of all, I think um, the way I define empathy in the book is acknowledging somebody's reality, acknowledging their experience. It is not rejecting the person. It is not agreeing with their opinions. It is not affirming their relationships. It is not signing off on their uh, different political views or other views, but it is acknowledging their reality. It's kind of like what Jesus said in uh, Matthew 5, 38 through 48. If somebody forces you to go one mile, go with them two. Um, contrary to popular belief, we cannot walk um you know a mile in somebody's shoes, but we can walk miles next to people. And so I think that empathy, um Brene Brown says that it's feeling with another person. Reggie Joyner says that empathy is the ability to put your own thoughts and feelings on pause long enough to think and feel with another person. So I think empathy is again, it is neither the rejection nor the agreement, it is the acknowledgement, it is feeling with them, it is saying, hey. I'm going to walk with you as far as I can, as much as I can to help you, um, you know, to help guide you towards Christ, to help guide you towards God. And I think that Jesus, uh, God, is the greatest example of empathy. Even his name, Emmanuel, God with us, and he came to live with us and mm-hmm. um, so so on and so forth. So uh, that that's where I think empathy is just uh, a huge part of this. And I think it's unfortunately misinterpreted by a lot of people because of how other people define empathy. So I just made up my own definition. I don't know. I like
0: that. And do you have like an illustration, I mean, besides Jesus, like, do you have an illustration of in your own life of kind of that, that, that kind of empathy?
1: Yeah. When I first started going to that Bible study, I I went to an Episcopal church, an Anglican church back in the day, every now and then. And not every Anglican church was or Episcopal church is like this. But the church that I was attending with my dad that we went to every six or eight weeks when he felt guilty, he would take us. And um, like that, that was my idea of church. And they never talked about Jesus. They only talked about social issues and that kind of a thing. And so when I went to this Bible study before I was a Christian, uh, these people had such a huge impact on me. And I remember um, when they first started praying, I'm like, it's no script where's the script? You don't have a book. Like you need a book and they didn't have one. And they're just praying, Lord, I just pray. I'm like, dude, can you do that? I'm waiting for the bolt of lightning to hit the deck. If there is a God, you know, that's why I'm thinking. And yet they knew that I was annoying. Like I I couldn't find first, uh, I couldn't find first Corinthians. And so I, I read a verse in first Chronicles about some dude getting impaled and thinking they would notice. And it was just, it went downhill from there real quick. It was like the Titanic. And yeah, they still made room for me. They didn't criticize me. They didn't attack me. I would air my opinion every now and then they didn't make me feel less than. And so for me, that really made a big impact on me. Um, If they had not been empathetic like that in their treatment of me and even in the community, I don't know. Um, how long it would have taken me to be a Christian, but they definitely helped.
0: Yeah, that's good. And you, in in messy truth, you discuss the difference between relating as and identifying as LGBTQ. What, what is, what do you mean by that? What's the difference? So it, it's my simple, simplistic
1: binary way of trying to make sense of different um, to make sense of, of, of how to navigate this terrain. And really I look at, I look at it as there are three groups. There are people who have experience with LGBTQ and those are primarily, if not all um, people who are uh, heterosexual, who are not sexual minorities. They don't identify or relate as that people who relate as LGBTQ um, where that, that is a, a, you know, a part of them, you know, they, might be attracted to somebody uh, to people of the same sex. They might even be in a same sex relationship, Um, but their gender and their sexual orientation in that community, uh, whatever community they're in within the acronym LGBTQ, that is not their main worldview. That is not where their main identity lies. I I do know uh, several people who are in same sex relationships. Again, I don't, Agree with the relationship, but I know several people who are in same sex relationships, and that is not their main worldview they 've never been to a to a bar they 've never been to a uh an activist event or anything like that. I think some of the times there are people that think that if somebody's gay, then that just is everybody you know they 're just automatically in the club and I think there are a lot of people that are not in the club they they don't want to be in the club and so Uh, But then you have people who identify as, and and these are the individuals that unfortunately are uh, the extremists. They're a bit harder to talk to because their main identity, their primary identity is wrapped up in some way, shape or form in their gender identity, sexual orientation, that community, LGBTQ. That is how they see the world. Mm -hmm. And so that is why they go off. That is why they attack when you disagree with them and you're like, dude, we're just disagreeing. And to them, it's not disagreeing. You are attacking the very fabric of how they interpret their life. And yet for me, that's a great opportunity to tell people, you know, you know, the great thing about being a Christian is, is that when you are a Christian, your identity is secure in Christ. You don't have to fight to try to protect it. He guards it. That allows us to be uh, ordinary people through whom which God does extraordinary things. And so that, that's kind of the way that I look at Identify as relate to experience
0: what I like that I might steal that for my steal away, <laughs> steal away, rename um, it it's all yours. And I'm so sure you I mentioned you mentioned community before, and and you really stress this in the book and messy truth. What what why is community so important, and how does it help? How does community help strengthen and uh, help? How does it help people, especially like someone who like me who's come out of that life and get saved 12 years ago, how does that help uh, strengthen and help them to discover their true identity? I think, I think a few different ways. Uh, Number one,
1: I I love what Jackie Hill Perry writes in her book, Uh, good girl, gay, um, good God, gay girl. And um, what she basically, and I'm paraphrasing, she said, uh, she asked the question, do you know who God used to heal me from my church hurt? The church. And so, one of the things I say is that if people feel like they've been driven away from church or Jesus because of bad experience with Christians, how much more could they be brought to Jesus because of good experiences with Christians? And so, number one, I think that's a huge impact and, and um, element of community. Number two, I think that community is incredibly important when it comes to shaping who we are, um, shaping our beliefs, working through Um, our our ethics and our theology and so on and so forth. Um, And then also, I I really believe that community, we need it. We need like-minded people to walk with us when life hits the bottom of the barrel. And so in so many ways, like that, community does shape who you are. And it is easier, I think, to process life, theology, and ask really good questions when you're around like-minded people. Now, there can be diversity of thought within the like-mindedness. I'm not saying that it needs, they need to be cookie cutter people, you know, all thinking alike, no matter what, but um, there do need to be some uh, anchors, um, which obviously I think uh, Christ is one, the Trinity, the resurrection, the inspiration of scripture, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. So on and so forth.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I had, as you know, and I've talked about this in my book, I had such amazing still and still do had, when I first got saved, I had this amazing community around me and they were so supportive and just poured into me like crazy. I mean, including my pastor, Tim Chaddick, he met with me once a week and had coffee with me. Not that pastors have to do this, but, um, I just felt so just loved and embraced and, and also, just as you like theologically people were just pouring into me theologically and uh you know Tim Chaddock was sending me like tons of sermons and books and all kinds of stuff so i felt that and i and i i know how important that is but i want to shift now to parents i i mean because i i get and i'm sure you do too i get a lot of um you know emails and 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 things and messages from parents and and when I go speak at churches and conferences, uh, I get a lot of questions from parents, and there, you know, these questions are very difficult, and it's sometimes hard to kind of give a one size fits all answer to a parent. But I, let's let's try our best right now with these questions. So, how? How, let's, start, let's just start with this. How and when should parents begin talking to their kids about a biblical view of sexuality and marriage?
1: I think when they're in early elementary school, I think, you know, I mean, the, the old adage is, you know, we're going to have the talk or the talk about the birds and the bees. No, you need to have a series of talks um, and you need to start when your kids are young. And some of the listeners may not have done that. It's never too late to start. You know, you, you you can still do that. But I think even when they're young and uh, early elementary age, just saying, hey, um, you know, we believe that, you know, God created marriage um, and we believe that mom created marriage for men and women. Um, and there are a lot of people in the world that don't believe that. But we believe that because of what the Bible says. We also believe the Bible says we shouldn't love people even when they disagree with us or we disagree with them. but. Um, this is what we believe because this, this, and this. And so just having those little conversations when they're younger and they can process just a little bit and then increasing that, um, you know, as, as they get older. And again, you don't want to talk about it all the time because then you turn into a creeper, but <laughs> you know, it, it's incredibly important for you to be begin to have those talks. And I think, I think along with that, parents need to understand it is, it is their job to disciple their kids. It's my job to disciple my kids. Um, the church helps to resource us. But that's why I think it's so important that church that parents find a really good biblical church that's Christ-centered and will help to partner with them to teach their kids Christ-centered values.
0: Yeah. I mean, my, my parents um, didn't ever mention sex when I was growing up. And it was just kind of like they just It was never brought up and they, I never got the birds and the bees talk, Yeah, but so for parents, so how do parents like my parents, how do they, how do they create an environment? As you talk about in the book, how do they create an environment where their kids feel comfortable coming to them and saying, Hey mom, dad, like I, I feel like, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like I'm starting to be attracted to the same sex. And I don't really, I mean, that would have been such a, an amazing thing for me growing up when I was you know, in late elementary school and high school to be able to come to my parents and say, hey guys, like this is happening in my life and I don't really know what to do with it. But it was just like, it was completely, that kind of talk would have been bizarre and forbidden in my family. <laughs> Not right. forbidden, but it would have just been bizarre. And so right. how do you, how does a parent create that that transparency, that environment. I think that we have to get comfortable with our kids asking
1: good questions. So we have to allow our kids to ask questions. And, you know, we have to allow our kids to doubt. Like our kids might be saved and they might doubt. They might have their doubts about what the Bible says here or about God or that kind of thing. And we shouldn't freak out about that. Now, we should help them to find answers and resolve doubt, but, you know, doubt still implies faith. You know, like I've never doubted in werewolves. because I don't believe in them. I've never <laughs> doubted that unicorns exist except for the big chubby ones called rhinoceroses. Like I've never doubted that <laughs> unicorns exist because I don't believe in them. You can't doubt what you don't believe in. And so I think a lot of parents freak out when that's still evidence of belief. And so, and, and that's an invitation to engage when they come and talk to you. And so, um, not being upset, not blowing up when they ask questions. Uh, when, if your kid comes out to you and says, I think I might be this, uh, not, and I'm sure you say many the same things, not immediately freaking out. Mm-hmm. And some of that especially is dependent on the age because kids go through different phases. And I can't tell you the number of um, students that I've talked to. I, I speak for this ministry called CIY and then students in different churches I've known one summer or one year, they'll tell me I'm gay. And then the next year they'll say, I'm not gay anymore. And I don't say anything, but in my head, I'm thinking, wow, it's like, it's like a Christmas miracle. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I'm just thinking you never were. It, it's, it's, it, there, there's a sense in which it's in within youth culture right now, yeah. you know, to, I, to relate or identify as a sexual minority. And so I, I think the parents need to remember their kid's brain isn't done developing until like the age of 25 or so. And so with that, um, creating an environment where you still have boundaries, you allow questions, but you're still reinforcing in the conversations you have the biblical view and what you believe. Um, I think that that will take parents a long way. Allowing questions takes parents so far with their kids.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I actually talked to uh, my friend and his daughter, my friend called me yesterday and he, he was with his daughter who is a student at a Christian university. And she was telling me, like you said, I mean, it's so pervasive today. And she said that I think in one of her classes, the professor asked how many in here are bisexual and like 90% of the kids raise their hand. <laughs> it's just like, what? and it's it's this thing in our culture now that this is the new tattoo or the punk rock haircut or whatever it's like the it's the new way to kind of feel cool and different and unique and it's and you know to change your pronouns and all that kind of stuff um yep. so it is a it's a very it's a very strange time we're living in
1: it is it is very much so I've noticed two things I want to see what you think about this number one I've noticed that. Um, while I do believe that there are some people who are bisexual, a vast majority of people that I know who have said they are bisexual in the last three years are in heterosexual relationships. Um, there's just something about that. And again, I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. I'm just saying that there's a sense, I think, in which, um, you know, society it's almost difficult to have really close feelings for somebody of the same sex right now, especially if you're a female, you know, where it's like, Oh, maybe I'm bisexual. Cause that's the other thing that I notice, And I want to see what you think about both these things, but how about this? I have seen just a huge increase in young teenage girls identifying as sexual minorities, even more so than boys as I'm going out and as I'm Mm -hmm. talking I don't know what it is, like, even as young as 11, 10. And I'm sure tr- and I know there's younger, I, I've talked to younger, but especially my daughter, who's 12. I mean, she's got three friends who have said, you know, we're bi. They're like, are you bi?" She's like, I'm good. So what do you think about that? I well, mean, yeah, the, I mean, I think,
0: the- yeah, I think it's um, a largely a result of media and and I like I talked about this on on an episode on this show uh but like for example this is just one of a million examples but um there's a the TV show called Generation on HBO mm-hmm. and it's about all these high school kids and basically all the kids on the show are bi gay or trans I mean I and and they're all and I can I can imagine young kids, young high school kids watching this show or other shows similar to it and being like, oh that guy is bisexual or he's gay or or that girl is a lesbian like and she's so cool on the show like I want to be like that. And so I think that's really having a huge, huge impact on culture and the creators of that content uh, some of whom are my old friends uh, they're really you know they're really transforming kids' minds and, and, and making them truly believe that they are something that they, they aren't. That's, the, that's, what I, that's what I think about that.
1: In my, in my kid's school system, I remember his either sixth or seventh grade year. I think it may have been a sixth grade year. Um, one of his teachers, like first or second day of school, had the entire class get in a circle, had everybody share what gender they wanted to be. Wow. Why? It's why. I'm not trying to be rude to people who experience gender dysphoria. Hear me out on that. I'm really not. I'm just saying. I'm not going to say the title of the class, just in case somebody just in case somebody lives in the area where I live. I'm just going to say, if I told you the name of the class, you'd be like, "Are you kidding me?" It's like, why? What? What does that accomplish? And so, it, it's stuff like that. But then, like, you know, what's interesting, Beckett, is um, it is either summer or fall of 2019 time magazine reported on a survey that glad did and the survey found that gen z was less affirming of lgbtq than millennials
0: yeah and i've heard that
1: i've thought about that a lot and the more i think about it, the more i'm like i don't know if they're less affirming but you know what i think it is i, I think that i mean i hear it from I, I lead i volunteer in my church besides being on staff i volunteer as a high school small group leader I hear from my guys uh, that I, that I meet with every Wednesday. I hear from my my own kids. They're kind of like, why do they keep on talking about sexual minorities all the time? Why do they keep on talking about orientation? Why do they keep on like, it's all the time. And I think there's a sense in which like, you know, Gen Alpha, Gen Z are kind of like, okay, we get it. What, why, why so much? You know what I mean? I think that it really, I, I see it backfiring. I see it almost kind of replicating the moral majority of the Christian coalition of the eighties and nineties and that kind of extremism. And I see that head in that direction. And I don't think it's going to be great. I don't think it's going to be the utopia that they imagine.
0: Yeah, I do. I, I agree. I think the pendulum is going to swing back in a dramatic way because it, it is, it's just exhausting. You know, I can, I can, I can imagine being a teenager or in college at this time, during this time, and just being like, okay, (laughs) like this is all too wacky. I I'm out. Like I'm done with all this. Um, Even, you know, even as a non-believer, I would, I would have just been like, this is too much. It's, it's over the top. You talk about this in your, in the book of preparing for dialogue. And when I uh, had that dialogue with those Christians at the coffee shop 12 years ago, um uh, like for example if i if you had been at the coffee shop and and i you know approached you and asked you and started asking you questions like how how do you prepare for a dialogue with somebody who is in the lgbtq community um
1: i think there's a difference between preparing when you have to have a specific conversation with somebody who's a friend you know and then i think that um there's another way that we can prepare for impromptu conversations. There's a great book uh, that I have a couple of friends of mine just released last year. It's called Impromptu Leadership. And it's really about how do you prepare to lead in the situations that you don't count on? The situations that just spring up like that. And you have to make a decision, you have to have a conversation, so on and so forth. And so I found that one of the greatest tools that I have at my disposal when that happens is to ask questions, to ask questions about the other person and get to know them. Like if they're asking me about the Bible um, that I'm going to answer, you know, their questions, but I'm also going to say, you know, well, what do you think about that? We're like, what's your, what's your opinion about the Bible? What have you, what have you thought? What have you.
0: That's kind of like what Jesus did. He would like turn the question on back on them. Like on yeah. the rich young man, he turned, he would turn the question on him
1: yeah because i I figure that this is not always the case, but in situations like that, I found that sometimes when people ask questions like that, um, they really are not sure of what they think about it or they're confused or maybe they think they're sure, but deep down inside they're not, and so when we ask them questions like that, um, it can start to turn the tide a little bit, and it can help them kind of process and think through things,
0: yeah, and so I mean these the next few questions are kind of like what parents really want to know (laughs) And, and what relatives and friends of, of people in the, in the gay community want to know. Uh, I think is, these are kind of like the top ones that I get when I speak, but so what do you, gay weddings, what do you do when your daughter invites you to her gay wedding or what do you do when your nephew or niece or your, your best friend invites you to their gay wedding?
1: Yeah. So for me, um, the way I've kind of landed on that is I think it's kind of a and, – and there are several people that disagree with me on that and, and on this, and I think that's fine. I really do, and I admit I very well could be wrong. There are some things I don't think I'm wrong about, like how awful The Last Jedi was as a movie, but um, I, I'm not I, – I, to me, this is a great issue. So I think that there are good biblical reasons not to go, and I think there are good biblical reasons to go. Um, it almost feels like a Romans 14 issue. Now, I'll tell you one thing I I cannot, I could not do with good integrity. I I would never officiate a same sex wedding. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, even if it was my own kids, because as much as I love my kids, um, I I, I don't want to break my integrity when it comes to what I believe and my theology. To me, there is a difference between officiating a wedding and attending a wedding, because I think you can attend a wedding and be there to support the person. Um, but not celebrate the union, because you want to keep influence with a person. So you can say things like, um, thank you for inviting me. Love you. You know, I'm glad to be here with you today. Um, You mean so much to me. I mean, there are different things like that you can say. But usually what I ask parents is this, to help them process it. Number one, if you did not go to the wedding that your kid or friend is having, would it cost you influence? Yes. Okay would it cost you a lot of influence? Sometimes the answer is no, it really is. Then I'll ask the third question. If the answer is yes, I'll say, what would you do uh, to keep and build influence with your child, with your friend? How far would you be willing to go? Short of sinning, short of denying your theological uh, view, how far would you be willing to go? Uh, would you be willing to be misunderstood by other Christians? Um, Jesus was. Now, again, as I said, this is somewhat subjective because it really depends. And I do know several situations where the kids love their parents. They have great relationship, but they just really rather their parents not there, you know, because they didn't agree with them. Um, But I think it depends on the situation. I, I, uh, anyway.
0: Yeah. And this just happened with a friend of mine recently, her daughter. I don't even know if her daughter is, uh, she's not trans, but she changed, she changed her pronouns. <laughs> she changed her pronouns. And so what, I mean, what do you do as a parent when your child changes their pronouns? I mean, and demands kind of demands that you use those pronouns. What, how do you deal with that? Especially if they're, you know, in high school or even elementary school?
1: Yeah. So I think that, okay. So I used Okay. This is, this is interesting. I've been thinking so much about this lately. Um, Preston Sprinkle actually has, uh, I think a podcast episode on this or something where he talked to a doctor over in the UK, a Christian doctor, and she kind of changed my mind. So before I would have said, use their new pronouns, no matter what, because you want to earn influence. That's what I would have said before. But after listening to this lady, she kind of jacked me up a little bit. She kind of messed with me. And I'm like, I'm still thinking through it. And so, um, you know, her argument was, you know, that you still have to set a good example. And you still have to help ground your kids in reality. Um, And uh, depending on how young your kids are, um, if we do not help to ground them in reality, we're basically throwing them to the wolves. And so the more and more I thought about that, and I know that some people are going to say, "Well, of course, Caleb, that's elementary." Yes, but at the same time, you're trying to be to, you're trying to be like Jesus, and Jesus was confusing, right? That's one of the reasons why the Pharisees didn't like him. He was gracious when they thought he should be truthful, and he was truthful when they thought he should be gracious. And there are even times when I read the Gospels and I'm like, "Wow, Jesus kind of took it easy on that person." <laughs> I would have just <laughs> you know what i mean yeah and and then there are times where jesus said something you're like whoa whoa didn't have pr directors back in the first century but exactly you know what i mean so it's like I'm, i'm still thinking through that whole i think it's different if they're an adult but when they're young kids or in high school i'm beginning to kind of lean the other way man um Anyway, do you know and what I what mean? What
0: about and what about if because this I get this question a lot and it's actually happened in my life. I brought a boyfriend home for Christmas one year. Uh what are your thoughts on that when when a child your child wants to bring a, a gay boyfriend or girlfriend home for Christmas or for, for whatever, for the holidays or something like that?
1: I think that if you want to have a good relationship with your family, I think if they're an adult, if they're adults, you should really consider letting them do that Mm -hmm. and loving them as much as you would anybody else. I think, again, it's different if they're in high school, it's different when they're in middle school, elementary, because you're still, you're in a different phase of life and you're parenting in a different way. Um, But when they're adults, that's different. And it's kind of, you know what I mean? You just, there are things you can tell kids to do you can't tell adults to do. The world would be better if we could tell some adults to do the things we tell kids to. Like, anyway, I digress.
0: Yeah. And so, um, and this one, you know, is is a big hot topic. And I, I, of course, interviewed Jack Phillips. But what, so what, what do you do about if you're a Christian? And you, you know, have the biblical sexual ethic and the, <clears throat> you have your conviction settled and you're asked to do something in your business that goes against that. What, what do you do or what, what are your, what's your opinion on that? So first and foremost, you know, I think, you know,
1: we should try to do whatever we can, whatever we feel comfortable with to try to reach as many people with gospels as, as much as possible. And I know you believe that too. But on the other hand, um, I really, really support religious freedom. Um, and, I, and I have kind of, it's weird, Preston, you know, I wrote a 105-page document on the Equality Act and because I'm a freaking nerd. But, dude, I'm, I, I have a love-hate relationship with religious freedom. On the one hand, I don't, I don't like it because I really think it, it allows for there to be a lot of nominal Christians, where Christianity is just another compartment in their life. Oh, I don't need to go to church for the next four weeks. I got soccer practice. So what about church, dude? What about, and then, and then they're like, why is there, well, why is my kid going wayward? Well, you don't, you don't have them involved. What do, what do you expect? Like, really, what do you expect? How do you expect them to value what you're not going to teach them the value? Number one. Um, so on the, uh, on the one hand, there's that, but here's the thing. I'm an avid supporter of religious freedom uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it makes society better. It just does. Religious freedom for all religions. okay? not the creepy ones like Satanism, but still um, it makes society better. But number two, um, I I think that religious freedom, it's obviously in the First Amendment. And I really think that business leaders should have the opportunity to define what their business looks like and what it doesn't look like, Mm -hmm. Uh, what is comprised of it and what is not comprised of it. Um, would I have made a different decision than Jack? I don't know. I've never been a baker before. I don't, I've never been in his situation. And it was just, to me, it was, it has been evil almost. Not almost, just evil in general, the way that he has been attacked. Yeah. And again, I don't think that speaks for the majority of people who relate as LGBTQ, but the extremists that will not let it go. I think that just shows um, just some of the spiritual forces behind this. Yeah. It's not about freedom. It's about decimation.
0: It is. And I talk, I mean, I talk about this in an episode. I don't I'm sure you've read Douglas Murray's book, madness of crowds. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And he talks about the overreach and, and I love that illustration. He gives about a train arriving at the station. Cause you know, mar- gay marriage is legal in 2015 the train finally arrives in its state at its station and instead of the passengers getting off and you know being happy the suddenly the train lurches and you know just <laughs> lurches through and and barrels through the train station and destroys everything in its wake and that's what i think is happening now with certain activists in the in the community and it's real it really is Wicked and it's all, and I agree with you, it is I think there is a supernatural element to it, which I, I did a, a, another episode on. I think there is a spiritual demonic spiritual realm that's going on that's fueling that fire, that's fueling that that anger and that that um that kind of just overreach, so 100%, yeah, 100 percent, because when you think about it,
1: what was what, what was one of the first things that Satan tempted? Adam and Eve with in Genesis 3. If you eat this fruit, you will be just like God knowing the difference between good and evil. So he leveraged identity from the very beginning, trying to get them to repeat his sin up in heaven. He had an identity crisis, thought he could be God. He gets kicked out of heaven. It's like, hey, you can be just like God. I'm going to mess your life up. Ever since then, that identity has been of fuel. I think one of the main drivers for satanic attacks when it comes to culture and society. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And speaking of God, you talk about guardrails and I, and I talk about this too, when I speak about, I, I, cause I love having these guardrails now as a, as a believer in my life. I love knowing what's wrong, what's right. Uh, Because, you know, before I lived in a postmodern world, I didn't know what was up or down, right or left, you know, black or white. I was just so confused. I love having these guardrails when it comes to sexuality, but talk about that. Talk about why you, why why do you think, I mean, I, I have an answer to this too, but why do you think God created sex to be expressed between one man and one woman for life? Why did he do that? Well, I mean, there's several reasons people give procreation,
1: communication, um, even recreation, we am going to have all the shun words there. Um, but then like, ultimately my, my personal belief is the reason why marriage was created ultimately was to foreshadow the ultimate marriage between Jesus and the church. Um, Which
0: Paul talks about in Ephesians five.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so you look at the marriage, you look at the Bible, it begins in a marriage. It ends with in a marriage. And I think, you know, we spend all of our time talking about not we, but society spends a lot of their time and Christians get wrapped up into it sometimes talking only about sex and marriage. And yet Jesus said, neither will be in heaven. And I've always kind of wondered why is neither going to be in heaven? And so here's what I think right now, man, I don't know what you think about this, but like animal sacrifices were set up to foreshadow the cross. And when Jesus died as our vicarious substitutionary atonement on the cross. Um, there's no more need for animal sacrifices because that had been fulfilled. The foreshadowing had been completed. Well, I think one of the reasons why sex and marriage will not be in heaven is number one, sex is included in marriage, but number two, um, the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus in the church. And when that union happens, there's no need for marriage anymore in the new heavens and the new newer. Um, and yet, we don't spend enough time talking about agape, stroke love or, uh, paleo love. We spend a lot of time talking about eros love. And I think we're really missing out on, um, we, we make people think that that is the ultimate, um, expression of intimacy there is. And that's a lie. There are much deeper forms of intimacy out there.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, Um, And and as I've said often, you know, my intimacy with Christ is, I mean, it's, I can't even compare it to the intimacy I had with boyfriends before I was saved. I mean, it's, it's so all consuming and so um, just wonderful that I don't, (laughs) I don't, (laughs) I don't miss that intimacy Uh, with those other people in the past like I don't I don't as I say all the time I don't ever want to go back to Egypt I don't want I don't want the onions or the the meat or whatever Uh, and so yeah I'm I I feel the same way like that that intimacy is uh, and that's the thing it's like the more and this is what I tell, you know, young people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, who, who want to follow Christ. I'm like, you know, the more intimate you are with Jesus, the less, the less, uh, I really think the less you're going to have, not that those desires are going to fully go away, but they're not going to be dominant in your life. Cause the, cause the closer you are with the source of real intimacy and the source of real fulfillment and joy, like the, the less that's going to be a, a, you know, a stumbling block in your life. Yeah. I think that's
1: important because if the goal is for um, the orientation, attraction, or desire to go away, then you're probably not going to achieve that goal. And is that the ultimate goal or is devotion to Christ the ultimate goal? Um, And, and you can really tell the difference between somebody who has a faith that is based out of obligation versus somebody who has a faith that is based out of devotion. Um, One breeds resentment, the other one breeds love. And so I think you're, you're a great example of that devotion side and um, it's not easy and it's difficult. And Christians can be really horrible people sometimes, but people in general, Homo sapiens, can be horrible people in general sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, my 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 wife's dad died unexpectedly. I think I told you that yeah, uh, the end of April, and um, and yeah, that hurt so much. And I hurt my kids, and they're still reeling from it. And my wife and um, I remember. I was having a night where I I couldn't sleep and I was up almost all night praying and thinking about it and reading scripture and kept on asking God, why can't you take this away? And then I was thinking, if you took it away, there'd be no love. If you took it away, we wouldn't feel the need to depend on him. And so some of the times I think that's why God allows the difficulty to remain because he wants it to foster devotion.
0: Yeah. That's why I think he, when, when he tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. Right. It's a, it really does force us to lean into him more and to, to really, yeah, to really rely on him as our source and and not other things. Um, and just, so two, two last questions. Um, what, okay. If, if, cause I, you know, I get this a lot. If, A Christian, we kind of discussed this a little bit, but if a, if a Christian mother or father has, you know, a son or a daughter and they come out to them today, let's say they come out and they tell their mom and dad, Hey, I'm gay. And, or they're, they're just, they come out and they're fully engaged in that life. What, what is the best kind of advice you would give to a mother? Like what, what to do or what not to do, or, you know, is it just praying for the kid? Is it like, what, what's your advice on that? I think that when
1: somebody comes out to you, um, that's a moment you can't get back. And unfortunately, many of the times we cannot control our first reactions when something happens, you know, we can have more control over our second, third reactions, but usually that first one is tough to control. But that that first one is so important. And so um, I usually tell people probably the same thing that that you tell people. That's a time to listen. Um, That's not a time to throw out Bible verses. You can talk theology later. But in that moment, that's a time to listen. That's that's not a time to become Sherlock Holmes and figure out what happened in the past. That's not a time to uh, suggest counseling, to get mad, to start throwing your emotions all over them. Um, as much as you might be doing that on the inside, try to keep that on the inside. This is a moment for you to listen um, because a lot of times in those moments, you're going to learn a lot and you'll learn more as they go on, you know, and, and you go on in your relationship with them. But if you're so concerned about how you're feeling that moment, you may miss out on some really important things that they're telling you or some plans that they have and that kind of thing. And so... I do think there's a time where, yeah, you do talk about the theological aspect of things, definitely. Um, And uh, usually those are are best had when the other person brings it up. Sometimes they don't. And sometimes you have to create that scenario where you do bring it up and you do talk to them about it. Um, But when somebody first comes out, that is a time uh, for you to listen and try to learn in that moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's that's what
1: what
0: I talk about too. uh, And, you know, it's like parents almost need to just, as you said, keep that in and just go into their closet and, you know, do primal scream therapy (laughs) or just, you know, because that is such a crucial moment and it was a crucial moment in my life. And, you know, praise God, my parents were, they really took it in stride and were so they were so loving about it. And I really, you know, cause it's, it, as, as someone, as a, you know, someone who used to be gay, I used to identify as gay. That's so important, you know, to you that, that moment when you tell your parents is like, it's a, it's something you never forget. And yeah, I'll never forget how lovely my parents were in that moment. And the yeah. last question I have for you is how, okay. So, I mean, this has happened. There, this has happened many times i think in my church but um as as a church as, as at your local church or as the church in general how do you respond to say for example if a gay couple kind of not really knowing what's what's what start attending your church like what do you do you talk to them do you just kind of let them come week after week and hear the gospel. Like what, what's your recommendation for how the church can best love be a grace and truth, like balance balanced grace and truth with, with that kind of situation.
1: Yeah. When we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a same sex couple that has a gay couple that's just started attending. Um, not somebody that got caught in a relationship or something. They've been yeah. there for years, but somebody that just started attending. I think that we need to give them margin and room to attend. And um, there are some churches and some church leaders who I think they, I think their intentions are in the right place, but they're like, when do we have the conversation? Like how soon? It's like, what conversation? Jesus or the gay conversation or what? And they're like, well, the gay conversation. I'm like, well, why don't we talk to them about Jesus first? Why don't we help them fall in love with Jesus first, you know, because, again, I think trying to foster that devotion is so important. And again, almost every single church I've worked with, um, I'm like, you know, don't confront them on it. Try to get them in small groups, you know you got to create places where I think anybody can serve, even if you're an atheist. And again, that shouldn't be in leadership or anything like that. I'm not saying I should be at the info center. You know, if you're a Hari Krishna and you want to work at the info center, no, probably not going to work. But I do think that, um, you know, like after the MGM shooting in Vegas, central Christian church where Judd Wellhide is at, um, they were the number one responding church. They sent out their small groups in the community And in nearby states of Arizona, California, to go minister to um, uh, survivors, uh, to go minister to families and friends of victims, uh, employees of the MGM Grand, people that had PTSD. And they were so successful that uh, unbelievers started calling the church and said, hey, can we join some of these groups and go help, you know, people? And Central said, of course. And so these people joined and a majority of those people became Christians and central saw one of their biggest attendance spikes during that time, because you had these unbelievers who were joining believers and they were doing the work of Jesus. They didn't know it. They were hanging around Christians all the time. They didn't know it, you know, in in that sense. And it rubbed off on them. And so that's why I say um, there, there does, you know, we need to create those places. And I found that almost every single time, the conversation will eventually come up. They're going to ask. Yeah. And when somebody has made uh, friends with people in the church, they have relationships, maybe they're in a group where they're serving, there's a much uh, more of a chance that they will end up staying, even if they disagree with the church. And that's a good thing because that means that I think the gospel is going to hook into them there.
0: Well, that's a good word. And we're going to leave it at that. Guys, the book is Messy Truth, How to Foster Community Without Sacrificing Conviction. I read it. It's wonderful. I really recommend this to you guys because it, it'll help you just help you understand this issue, even in a much deeper way, in a more empathetic way. So Caleb Kaltenbach, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com.